Welcome to The Neutral Ground. Critical thinking is not something that is easily defined or taught. Trust me. Sometimes people say, you know it when you see it. However, my guest this week, author Jonathan Haber, has written a fantastic book entitled Critical Thinking, and it explores what it is, where it came from, and how we can continually hone this vitally important skill. As someone who is in the profession of teaching critical thinking, I definitely recommend this book, especially if you're interested in in a little bit of history, you know, how we came to critical thinking, and also in having a practical guide for how we can engage in more critical thinking. Now, we don't just discuss the book, we actually put it into practice. We engage in a bit of a discussion of the rhetorical back and forth that took place between CNN and Joe Rogan. Trust me, you're not going to want to miss this conversation. Now, before we dive into it, just a quick note. Please hit the subscribe and or follow button on whichever platform you're currently listening to me on. And if you're on Apple or Spotify, please consider leaving a kind rating and or comment as well. That will help get our message of civil discussion in front of more eyes. Now, without further ado, enjoy my conversation with Jonathan Haber. Jonathan, welcome to The Neutral Ground. How are you doing today? Good. I'm good, Joseph. Thanks for uh, having me on. Great. Well, let's dive into the conversation. You dedicate your book, Critical Thinking, to mom and dad for teaching me to think. So how did they do that? And when did it actually hit you that that's what they were trying to do? Yeah, well, you know, my, my parents are both academics. Uh, my father was an English professor. Uh, uh, like you, he taught at uh, University of Lowell in Massachusetts for many years. My mother was a librarian at uh, Radcliffe. And, you know, I, I think uh, we just took for granted the sort of, we always had dinner together and dinner would be full of conversations about things we were reading, you know, things we were working on in school. And so I think uh, without it being a sort of formal process, you know, I just sort of of understood thinking, discussing argumentation would be uh, kind of of, was part of my life. I didn't have the vocabulary for it then, but, you know, it continued uh, into adulthood when, you know, uh, my parents were uh, readers of material. Um, in fact, you know, my dad is prob- was probably one of the best editors uh, I've ever seen. So he was a person who edited a, a great deal of this work. I, I should say it was sort of poignant when I um, made that dedication because uh, by the time the book was coming out, my, my dad was was very ill and was, was dying. And um, I wanted to surprise him with that dedication. And... MIT Press, the publisher of the book, very kindly sent me a early release copy that they had for marketing purposes. I was able to kind of read him the dedication before he passed. So it was uh, particularly poignant that um, this this book was was dedicated to, to, to both my parents, but especially to him. Wow. Yeah, that was really nice of the press to, to give you that advanced copy. Oh, you know, the whole press mobilized. It was... Uh, it was really a wonderful moment uh, of kind of, of I mean, you've got a professional relationship with uh, people and it's a, a, a fabulous press, a fabulous group of people to work with. But that really sort of, of cemented on top of all that, what wonderful people they are. So I'm enormously and will forever be appreciative of that. You know, we hear so many times uh, negative stories 
uh, in the media and whatnot. It's just nice to hear that someone just did something, you know, really kind. Well, I think you do a really good job of pushing back against what must have been quite an urge, right, to cement a definition for critical thinking. In fact, you spend quite a bit of time in the early parts of the book discussing how critical thinking is defined by others. I think this works to your favor, actually, because the reader leaves with a really firm grasp of what critical thinking is, but they aren't necessarily pinned down by just one viewpoint. Because as you point out in the book, critical thinking is somewhat broad in how we approach it. So rather than ask you a question like, how do you define critical thinking? I'm going to ask you instead, how do you think about critical thinking? Well, I think, you know, the, the, the definitional issue came up all the time. I mean, the fact that you're kind of not asking a question makes you unique because when I would tell people I'm writing a book on critical thinking, a lot of them were asking, oh, you know, I hope you can come up with a definition because there's so many of them out there. And, um, you know, and in fact, I did start by thinking, well, maybe not necessarily coming up with my own to add to the pile, but to distill and synthesize, um, which is sort of, of, you know, what I do. Um, but as I kind of plowed through it, I realized, you know, a lot of these definitional issues, a lot of debates about definition were getting in the way. There was a lot of, of conversations I've had over the years, even before starting this book, that we can't teach critical thinking until we know what it is. That's a very familiar line you get when you're sort of trying to convince people to uh, work on critical thinking specifically as part of a curriculum, for example. So, you know, you realize there is this debate over definitions. But then when I started digging into that debate, you know, it's very typical of, um, of kind of academia. There is a discipline committed to critical thinking. It's a branch of philosophy. The, the critical thinking organization is part of the APA, American Philosophical Association. And, you know, academics do what they do. They research and try to come up with um, angles, definitions. In some cases, there's, there's um, um, commercial sort of need to own a definition because if you're creating a test or, or a curriculum, you, you do need some kind of definitional construct to work with. So I understand those imperatives, but they're just, I, I realize they're just not necessary to move forward with a critical thinking project. As a cited analogy, you know, the, the field of biology has transformed significantly over the last several decades. It's moved from something that when I was learning biology in high school, it was almost like learning a language. Um, the, you know, but over time, it's become much more computational with an understanding of DNA and DNA sequencing. You know, so the definition of biology is up for grabs, but we're not halting the teaching of the subject while we wait for these definitions to settle down. There's still a body of knowledge to, to teach and move forward. So my message was this, that the critical thinking project can move forward without what people are really asking for when they ask for definition is a, a definitional wording, some, some definitional words that we can all agree to. And um, you, you asked how I think about critical thinking. My, my approach was essentially genealogical. You know, where does the idea originate that there's a form of thinking distinct from knowledge and wisdom, unique enough to be called critical. And if you read the book, you'll see that's where I sort of started the exploration and ended up in a place where I think there is a consensus, even amongst all the definitions, we can agree with what critical thinking is enough to move forward with a critical thinking project. 
you know, what I really enjoyed here, whether you meant it or not, actually, is you is that the reader essentially practices critical thinking, you know, through analysis, through synthesis, while they're reading about all of these different thinkers like Aristotle and Dewey. This prompts the, the, the reader to develop his or her own kind of language for maximizing comprehension of critical thinking. And that's very empowering to the individual because it also prompts a, a creative process as well. That's something that I, I actually try to do with my students as well is to get them to have ideas, take them in, and then give them language to be able to maximize that kind of comprehension. Now, something you wrote in the book also I wanted to ask you about here, and that is in the first chapter, you write about the distinction between philosophy and science did not exist in the ancient world. Now, I think there are some individuals like um, Angus Fletcher and maybe um, Jonathan Haidt I think there are some people who are trying to meld philosophy and science together again a little bit here, but my question for you is, has that loss or the weakening of the connection between philosophy and science, has that impacted the way that we think critically today? Well, you know, I, I'd say, you know, if you ask a philosopher, especially, they will indicate that philosophy is not just the sort of, of uh, father of science, but the father of all disciplines. And, and you can certainly make the case that um, uh, certain disciplines, you know, science, psychology, grew out of a philosophical tradition. And, and it's not just ancient, right? Uh, until, you know, the sort of later part of the 19th century, people didn't call themselves scientists. They called themselves natural philosophers, right? So um, the, the connection is that um, you are making inquiries about the world. And some of those inquiries are about nature, science, some of the inquiries about the human mind, um, psychology, you know, some of them are about the soul or, or religious matters, right? So I would say, you know, the philosophical toolkit is utilized in all those fields, right? You know, the, 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 the discipline of philosophy will apply a set of tools, the, the you know, logic being first and foremost, but other sort of tools to an inquiry. And if you look at what scientists do, if you look at what scholars do in any field, they are in fact still using logic and argumentation to sort of both point people towards a conclusion. So I would say, you know, the, there are elements that I bring up a book from philosophy you know, that go back to Aristotle, you know, logic, argumentation, um, persuasive communication, rhetoric, et cetera, those do underpin all those fields, certainly when they are coming up with theories, testing them, communicating them to others. So um, yeah, I, I would say, you know, this is sort of probably a, a kind of separate tangent, but I would say one of the reasons the debates we have between sort of science and religion, for example, are so empty and sort of both hostile and vacuous at the same time, as I often describe it as, it used to be, you know, science, religion, and philosophy formed three legs of a stool, right? But nobody knows philosophy anymore. So we've kicked that leg out. So, and we wonder why the stool is still unstable. You know, philosophy provides language for, if not resolving, at least for people of differing opinions to, argue things out. And I think um, in a way my work and, and the work of other people 
including yourself, to sort of bring critical thinking back into the discussion in all matters is to sort of stabilize our discussions. I think, uh, why are we shouting at each other rather than trying to convince each other? Well, we don't know how to convince each other because we are not taught the sort of critical thinking tool set. And that's what I'm trying to bring back into education. Well, I'll just take a moment here and expose, uh, you know, something uh, from my own experience teaching here. Like you, I thought, I'm going to bring in some philosophy into my class here because I want to engage the students in, in some higher level kind of critical engagement, critical thinking. And, you know, I, I brought in people like Frederick Douglass, Plato, uh, a little bit of Nietzsche as well. But to your credit, what you did quite well in the book here that I didn't do so well this past semester is that we had our discussions and they were great discussions in a, in a vacuum, essentially, because we modeled how do we engage higher level thinking while we were having those discussions. But the problem that I ran into is that we had our discussions and then we talked about what critical thinking entails. And my students, without me knowing at the time, my students ended up separating those two things out. So they they looked at the discussions we had as simply interesting discussions, and then they were done. And then we moved on to critical thinking, and we did critical thinking, as opposed to thinking about how the two things synthesize together. So something that I took away from, from your book that I, I found to be quite useful as an educator was how we can use philosophy as a, a better means of organizing how we think about critical thinking, right? Because I, I can definitely tell that I would need to put those two things closer together in order for the students to understand that they work hand in hand. Well, I think you also discovered something that critical thinking researchers have, have been uh, studying for the last 30 years. There was a uh, important paper uh, written by Professor Enos um, in the 80s, where he proposed there are three different ways to teach critical thinking skills. Um, and then you read about these in the book, but one can do what we're doing in higher ed and teach a critical thinking course, right? That's called the general approach. You can teach your own subject matter, be it English or philosophy or science or, um, or, or uh, mathematics or whichever, and assume that you know, well-taught complex material students will be will be absorbing the critical thinking skills by osmosis, right? That's called the immersion approach. Um, but there's a third approach, which is called the infusion approach, where you still teach critical thinking skills in the context of a discipline, be it English or, or uh, science or what have you, but you explicitly bring out that you're teaching them critical thinking skills, right? So when you were teaching uh, students um, or pre presenting them with Aristotle or Nietzsche or, or philosophers, um, you were using an immersion approach, which is typical, actually, I would say most education in the world is, is done through that, that immersion approach. 
Um, but, you know, unless you sort of pull out the fact that Aristotle and Nietzsche are, are using uh, logical arguments, they're using them in very sophisticated ways, and then explaining to people what a logical argument is, and therefore having to explain to them what is logic and what is an argument, right? That's the explicit means of teaching. And as it turns out, you know, 30 years of research seems to confirm that this infusion approach where you teach critical thinking in the context of other subject matter, not necessarily as its own standalone course, but in the context of English and science, et cetera, that, but that you do so explicitly, you know, that's considered, uh, seems to indicate, research seems to indicate that that is the best way to teach critical thinking skills. So I'd say, you know, your challenge was the same challenge that people have when they're thinking, you know, I'm, um, I'm a great science teacher, you know, so therefore my students are becoming critical thinkers by learning chemistry from me. And then, you know, 12, you know, five years down the road, they get a job and, you know, 75% of employers say kids don't have these skills, right? They don't have the skills after high school, after college, after graduate school, you know? So I think there's uh, one of the reasons kind of 99% of professors say, teaching my kids to be critical thinkers is one of their top three priorities. And three quarters employers say, kids don't have these skills is not lack of enthusiasm, right? The, the, the academy, whether, you know, everybody from a kindergarten through graduate school professor, you know, now wants kids to, to develop these skills and think they're already doing it, you know? So that's the good news. They just don't happen to be using the best techniques to do so. And to sort of a lot of my work since publishing the book is trying to get academics to understand that with some small modifications to what they're already doing, that doesn't have to sacrifice the subjects they love and the, even the ways of teaching they love, uh, but just sort of supplement them in very strategic ways. They can accomplish what they claim that they want to accomplish, which is develop critical thinking skills in their students at any age level. Yeah, in my case, I definitely think that in the future, pulling the two ideas together, critical thinking and scaffolding critical thinking with the philosophy the philosophy as well, I think that will definitely help in the future here to, to push them more together as opposed to say, okay, let's learn this information of the philosophers and the, the great thinkers, and then let's try to use that to think about critical thinking, putting them together at the same time would probably have a, a, a better effect in the students seeing those two things as not separate kind of uh, parts of the semester, let's say. Another method that research shows is extremely important for critical thinking is deliberate practice. Yeah. You know, so um, in a way, critical thinking I would say is much more similar to a sport or a musical instrument, mastering a sport or musical instrument than it is your discipline, English or any other business, because it's it's a relatively small set of skills, right? I, I could teach students, I have taught students the, the critical thinkers toolkit in you know a couple of days, right? It's not nearly as vast as the world of literature biology, but to get really good at it, you have to sort of use it and use it for years, right? That that the rules of logic, let's say, you know, informal logic are very straightforward. You can start using them for what we call toy arguments, you know, arguments that are designed to be broken down and analyzed as part of a logic exercise. 
But to get good at it, you have to apply it to increasingly sophisticated materials like newspaper editorials, political speeches, you know, philosophical tracks, you know, uh, um, novels, you know, fiction, nonfiction documents, et cetera. And that's just something that has to kind of, of develop. That's a skill that develops through continuous and ongoing practice. So I would say, you know, for your students, one way to get them to get it would be making, you know, them develop their writing using argument or tools of argument rather than a traditional outline, right? In, in a way, the outline is the enemy of logic because it doesn't necessarily arrange things as premises leading to conclusion or at least doesn't identify them. Whereas if you ask students to map their papers logically before they write them, then they will sort of absorb, oh, actually, at the end of this, I'm writing a paragraph that contains an argument because it was planned that way. So that's, that's one kind of, of thing you may want to try next time you, you, you want to kind of get students to sort of internalize this. Okay, so let's, let's model this for our audience then a little bit here as well. You, there's an example that you use in your book, and it's a good one, I think, for, for our use here. I'm going to read this because I want it to be as accurate as possible. The example is based on a study by Aaron and Roska from the work Academically Adrift, and it proposes a conclusion that students in higher education are showing no growth in critical thinking ability during their time in college. Now, in order to believe the argument there, right, invalidated, the, the, you have to accept the two main premises that come before it. Here's premise one. The collegiate learning assessment, which is an assessment tool, of course, accurately measures a student's critical thinking ability. So you have to engage that first assessment that this college learning assessment tool can accurately measure a student's critical thinking ability. Premise two, college students who took the collegiate learning assessment early and then later in their college years showed no significant growth in test scores. So you have to buy the second premise, which says that this tool did in fact show that they, the, the college students did not show significant growth. Now, the final conclusion then from these two premises is that college students show no growth in critical thinking ability during their time in college. Now, when you talk about this example in your book, you break down how we can judge the validity of this final conclusion based upon looking at these two premises. Can you talk us or can you walk us through that process of how you engage in this judgment or, or validation of the conclusion? Sure. Yeah. I mean, the, the intro to the book kind of brought up the academically drift study because it was very prominent, you know, um, uh, kind of, of many people were talking about it um, when it first came out, because it, it certainly seemed to jibe with a sort of cultural sense that, that college was not preparing students for successful careers in life. And I think um, the, the notion that critical thinking is essential for a successful career in life was, was what attracted it to uh, my attention, because in a way that's a premise to that, that argument as well. So I, I mentioned that early in the book, and then the argument you just read came after a section on whether critical thinking can be assessed, right? So of sections of the book, you know, how can it be defined? Can it be, can it be defined? Can it be taught and can it be assessed? And, and my answer is, is, you know, 
yes to all three, or certainly yes to the point where we can get moving on, on the critical thinking project, right? So, um, so in order to evaluate the, the academically drift hypothesis that uh, critical thinking was not improving with students, you firstly have to understand what the authors are actually saying, right? You have to read the source material. You have to read academically drift. And if you do so, you will understand that they had a way of demonstrating that uh, students were not developing critical thinking skills. It was not just an observation out of the blue, right? They had a measure to determine critical thinking skills. And as you mentioned, it was a CLA plus, which I talk about in, in that section on whether critical thinking skills can be assessed. And it's a very prominent assessment. It's probably considered, um, you know, the best of, of critical thinking assessments out there, but it is an assessment. It's a commercial assessment uh, when you're dealing with um, any kind of professionally designed assessment. It's based on something called a construct, which is a definition, right? That, that I said before, you don't need a definition of critical thinking to move forward with a broad general education product of critical thinking. But you do need a definition of critical thinking if you're going to measure it, right? You have to know what you're measuring it. And that definition testing lingo is called a construct, right? So, so now we have one of our premises, right? One of our premises is that there exists this test called the CLA, and they did a scientific experiment, right? They tested a group of students at one point in their career, and they tested the, student, the same students later, okay? And in that study, they found no growth in test scores, Right. So from there, you kind of move into another that, that, that's a that's a critical thinking skill called background knowledge. Right. You need to know what you're talking about before you can have a, an argument. You know, you need to understand what the academically adrift thesis is really saying, you know, and you have to understand something about testing the critical thinking skills. Right. So I've just applied background knowledge. Then you have to sort of distill that into a logical argument, which is just what you just read. Right, the first premise of the argument is the CLA plus accurately measures critical thinking skills. The second premise is student test scores did not go up. And so therefore the conclusion is students did not improve their critical thinking skills, right? Now, we've just constructed an argument. We've used, I refer to generally as language skills. How do you take prose argument or implied arguments uh, that you'd see in a, a book like Academically Drift and distill it down to a set of premises leading conclusion, right? So that's the second, so we use background knowledge. We've used our language skills to take complex material and distill it into a set of premises leading to a conclusion. Now we analyze it using the tools of logic. And I, I tend to think and write in terms of informal logic. There are other forms of logic you could use. There's uh, diagrammatic reasoning, you know, um, but, you know, informal logic is simple and, and easy to explain. And it basically, there's two tests you apply to it. You know, one is the test for validity. Okay. And the test for validity says, if you accept the premises as true, are you forced to accept the conclusion? Okay. And in that argument that you read from the book, it in fact is valid, right? If you accept that the CLA plus accurately measures critical thinking skills and you accept that student skills didn't improve, then it's a, a conclusion, it's a valid conclusion that students think critical thinking skills did not improve, right? So there's your test for validity, okay? But there's a second test for argument strength and that is the test of soundness, right? That, that 
you, you want to test validity first, right? Because um, that will often tell you, does it, if, if your argument is invalid, right? If you accept the premises and reject the conclusion, then it doesn't matter if the premises are true or not, right? So um, you always want to test for validity first, right? So, but now you can check for soundness and the test for soundness is, can you reject one of the premises? Either because it's false or it's something a reasonable person can uh, can cast can can doubt. Okay, and in this case, we have two premises. The second premise said student test scores did not improve over time. Right, and in theory, we can reject that. Right, we can we can dig in their data, we can question their methodology. Um, you know, you can question people's integrity, but I think. It was pretty clear reading the book that they did a good job, and there's no reason to, you know, think that scholars of their caliber took the books. And there's, and especially since there's a much juicier target, which is the first premise, right? Because that's saying we have a measure of critical thinking skills. It's a CLA plus, and that we can make broad statements about general student critical thinking ability based on that test. And even the people who make the test don't make sweeping statements that this measures, you know, critical thinking full stop, right? We all know critical thinking is as complex. It does a very good job in measuring what it measures, okay? So if you agree that that constitutes critical thinking or is close enough or enough for us to use for purpose of this discussion, which is our students learning these skills properly, then, you know, you would accept that premise and then the argument is both valid and sound. You know, but if for whatever reason you reject that premise, right? You think um, critical thinking is um, uh, more broad than what the set of skills that can be measured with a CLA or any test, right? Or you think that sort of, of critical thinking encompasses other types of thinking, creativity and, and such, um, then you can reject that premise and therefore the argument is unsound. And, you know, people can have honest disagreements and debate these things. I think what comes out of that argument is, you know, Certainly, the academically adrift study shows that, you know, the sort of systematic types of reasoning that are core critical thinking skills that are measured in a test like the CLA do not seem to be improving sufficiently over someone's college career, right? So, you know, now you'll notice that the conclusion was not, and therefore, higher education is a waste of time, right? You know, in fact, you could point to conclusions uh, drawn from the study that, for instance, professors should spend more time explicitly teaching critical thinking skills, right? They should utilize techniques that will um, do what they claim they want to do, which is to improve student critical thinking skills. You know, so there's other kind of linked arguments that sort of draw from the study. And, and that was meant to just provide an example of how the complete critical thinkers toolkit can be used not necessarily to resolve a controversial issue, right? there's no final answer, but to argue it out and to argue it out thoughtfully and hopefully in a way to persuade or create understanding versus closing off debate and sort of both, uh, leading to kind of misunderstanding and mistrust. Now, what I liked about the way you framed this discussion in the book is you talk about an option of altering the conclusion a little bit so that it becomes more precise. So for example, you could say, based on the CLA assessment tool, students show no growth in critical thinking. And what's so important about that 
is that you can now validate those first two premises and say, okay, based on that one tool, not to say on a broad scale, in college students show no growth in critical thinking. It just simply says, based on this tool's metrics, students show very little to no growth in their critical thinking ability. What's good about that is you can plug in then other assessment tools into the conclusion and you can keep your premises and then you can start thinking about or refining the overall question of how, how we can measure students' growth in their critical thinking. And as someone, you know, if you're in higher education, you're always supposed to be having these kind of internal discussions and reflecting on where we are, where we want to be, and what are the tools that we're using to get to that point. So I actually really enjoy the, 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 the framing of how you walked through the process to get to a more accurate conclusion there at the end. Well, if people want to see like, you know, examples of this sort of being applied, um, you know, I, I've got a website called Logic Check that I created, logiccheck.net, that is applies these tools to current events, the news of the day. You know, it, the, the premise is it's meant to be, um, it's modeled on fact-checking sites, but the idea is that um, facts are premises to arguments, and you can have... A, completely truthful facts that all check, they pass all the, all the fact checking tests, but they're leading to a false conclusion. Why? Because they're unvalid or unsound. They, they lack um, some of the qualities of a strong argument. So I'm, I'm, part of my mission is trying to persuade the journalism field to embrace this concept of, of logic checking also, which is an interesting exercise in and of itself. But, uh, you know, but th these tools can be applied. In fact, I'm writing something now about kind of recent editorials in the New York Times and the Atlantic that are kind of starting to, you could say, question or think more broadly about COVID policies, right? We're entering the second year, we're entering, you know, sort of, of um, both new unknowns like new strains, but also things we didn't know two years ago when other policies were put in place. And I find it very interesting because to a certain extent, you're seeing a convergence between, um, you know, sort of, of people on one, on different sides of the political divide in terms of what we should be prioritizing, right? But of course they can't admit that, right? It's, it's, it's a lot of the responses to these editorials are like, you know, see, even the New York Times is admitting we were right all along, you know, but if you sort of peel back that rhetoric, right? That sort of polarized political rhetoric um, that's been really getting in the way of, of kind of sound, um, decision-making, frankly, in, in this global crisis, right, you can actually see a convergence of views. And, and in, in this day and age, I find that, like, when people on different sides of the political divide agree on something, there's probably something there, right? Because we want to disagree, you know, we want to disagree with our political opponents, right? We're always looking, you know, if they say, X, I say not X, right? You know, so if there's sort of convergence of opinion, there may be something valuable to kind of look at there, um, which I think is, you know, you're starting to see in, in, in COVID debates, you know, now I don't necessarily think that means 
everybody's becoming a critical thinker or embracing some of these ideas I've been sort of pushing, but it does show signs that like when the stakes are really, really high, people do sort of, of run to these toolkits. And, 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 you know, it's interesting when the book came out, I did a lot of interviews and a lot of them were in sort of like political shows because, you know, left wing, right wing, because everybody, you know, on all sides of the political spectrum love critical thinking. They embrace it. They think it's valuable, important. And so they're always asking, you know, why do the people who disagree with me not do it, you know, as opposed to my side, right? And I think if you sort of look through, I'd say logic check is not particularly um, picking, you know, partisan arguments primarily, but in occasions where I do analyze arguments and, and they have a kind of left-right basis to them, you can sort of see that, um, you know, the political identity actually has value, right? There, there's a set of, there are a set of values that come with picking a political identity, just the same way there are a set of values for having a religious identity, et cetera. And so they don't, those things don't have to get in the way of kind of thoughtful argumentation debate, which leads of course to the question, what is getting in the way of thoughtful argumentation debate? If, if one's political beliefs don't necessarily have to prevent people from engaging in dialogue, why do we refuse to engage in dialogue? And I, I guess I would say, you know, it's, it's a variety of factors, but a big one is we've just lost the ability to do so. We don't, we don't have the tools. We don't, you know, these, these things you and I have been talking about for the last kind of 40, 45 minutes is um, not something that students are taught or taught enough or given this, the ability to practice and get good at uh, so that by the time they reach college or reach graduate school or their first job, or even later in life, they're not sort of prepared to examine their own biases and see where those might be distorting judgment, dissect an argument to see what's really being said before jumping to conclusion or deciding you know, what something said, take that dissection and turn it into something you can apply logic or the critical thinkers toolkit to. So it's, um, you know, it, it is all entangled together, but I don't want people listening to this to think this is a purely academic debate. I would say, you know, our ability to get out of this mess we're in, you know, as a society, as, as a global society, and not just COVID, our sort of political polarization and, and sort of, of gridlock ultimately boils down to bringing some of this ability back into, back into the conversation. Wow, you're really doing a great job here of actually leading into my my questions. I want to give you a scenario that played out in my classroom and then see how you would deal with this in terms of critical thinking and evaluation. So I gave my students this semester a group project where I asked them to think about how we value information today. Specifically, I gave them four topics that I wanted them to come up with some kind of mechanism for how to organize this information. The four topics were, first, misinformation and disinformation. The second topic was confirmation bias. The third topic was how to deal with competing opinions. And the fourth topic was how do we deal with competing facts? Now, this last one, the competing facts one, 
was the one that was most interesting to them and also at times the more, most difficult one because we tend to think of facts as something that stands on their own merit, right? Uh, you can't really push back against a fact. You know, people say you can, you're entitled to your uh, opinions, your emotions, but you're not entitled to your, your facts. So when somebody puts a fact out there, they tend to stand behind it and feel quite good about their fact as an argument. Well, when we were talking about facts and competing facts, one of my students brought up a conversation in, that he listened to involving Joe Rogan and Sanjay Gupta, Dr. Sanjay Gupta. And what ended up happening was CNN came out and proclaimed that Joe Rogan had taken a horse dewormer to fight COVID. Now, the, the drug in question, and I can't really say the name of it because apparently if you say the name, they'll kick you off you know, YouTube or platforms, which is absolutely ridiculous. It, it, let's just say it begins with I, V, and then just keeps going from there. So CNN came out and proclaimed Joe Rogan is taking a horse dewormer to fight COVID. Now, what we did is we, we put arguments aside for a second, and we wanted to just kind of look at that statement, that claim, and just kind of break down what it actually means here. Is there validity to the claim that he took a horse dewormer? All right. So it is a fact that this particular drug is used as an anti-parasitic in animals, a horse being one of those animals. So on a purely surface level, uh, trying to validate the claim, Technically speaking, Joe Rogan or anybody who takes this particular drug has taken a horse dewormer. Sure, we can go with that, right? Okay. Now, in response to this, Joe Rogan came back and said, what I took was a Nobel Prize winning drug that won the Nobel Prize, I believe, for its anti-parasitic usage to treat and help cure river blindness in humans. Now, again, just on a surface level, looking at Rogan's claim back, is that factually correct? Yeah, actually, it, it did win the Nobel Prize, and it is used in humans to help treat river blindness, right? And it's actually quite a considered a miraculous drug in that way. So what I did is, I threw it out to my students. I said, okay, we've got one claim that we can validate. It is used in horse deworming. And we have another claim that says it is a Nobel Prize winning drug for humans. And I said, so what do we do when you have people throwing out these two facts against each other? And what do you make of this kind of, this approach to discussion? And I'm so proud of them, they were able to put aside their own biases about wherever they stood on this issue. You know, people tend to like to take stands on things, you know, these days especially. And they just looked at it as a, a problem of conversation. And what they said was, they determined that both 
uses of this as kind of attacks ends up being problematic because it's not actually addressing the underlying argument that they think it's addressing, which is, does this particular drug help in the treatment of COVID-19? Yeah, no, I, I, I commend you on sort of, of inspiring that exercise. I think it's really valuable. I think, um, you know, I, I, but I would say it also kind of demonstrates, I mentioned before, you know, journalists and fact-checking, it, it often is very difficult to have a conversation and explain to a journalist that they're in fact in the argument business, right? Because they think of themselves as producers of facts that could be, you know, verified as true or false, which of course they do and, and, and most do very, very well. Um, you know, but if you read even a news article, anything other than yesterday's weather, right? There are facts in there, but there, those facts are built into arguments, right? Even the weather report, okay? Predicting tomorrow's weather says, based on these facts, current barometric pressure and where clouds are, I am gonna argue that tomorrow is going to be sunny, right? That's a conclusion, right? So even in the simplest news stories, you know, other than reporting yesterday's sports scores, which are, or yesterday's weather, those are just facts, right? Almost everything else, facts are built into an argument, right? So you do have to understand what the argument is. Um, also, I think there's been a disservice in sort of talking about facts and opinion because, and that goes back to like kindergarten, right? You know, I, I do a lot of work with, with K-12 and you look at standards, you know, there's a, a lot about separating facts from opinion, which is a very important skill, but it leads to this notion that there are two things in the world, facts that can be proven true or false, and anything that's not a fact is an opinion or worse, just an opinion, right? But there's another thing in the universe, you know, which is reasons for belief, reasons, right? Uh, it's called warrant in logical argumentation, right? So when you're arguing that like, you know, we've had lockdown in place for six months, let's say this is, you know, the end of last year, year we've had lockdown in place for six months and COVID deaths are still going up, obviously mitigation methods aren't working, right? That's an invalid argument, okay? And don't dissect why, probably most listeners can, can instinctively disagree with it. Take my word for it. The reason you disagree with it, it's an invalid argument, right? But all the premises are true, right? You know, obviously can't argue six months after lockdown started that we've been in lockdown six months. And we all know deaths increased during that period, right? So there you have facts, okay? But the conclusion is not wrong, is not just an opinion, right? The conclusion is, is false, or at least conclusion is something you don't need to accept. But why? The facts are all true, okay? Because there's something that connects the facts to the conclusion, reasons, okay? So this falls because of reasons. Now, getting back to your Joe Rogan argument, you know, they were, your students were arguing, you know, they had a celebrity involved with that or two celebrities, so obviously that colors things. But the basic argument is, you know, is this drug effective at fighting COVID, right? Which is an argument, you can plug any drug into the premise of that argument, including the new vaccines, right? And in fact, you know, I, I wrote uh, on Logic Check about when Johnson & Johnson was pulled for a few weeks because people thought it did the job, but it had dangerous side effects, right? So even the things we take for granted, 
and we don't get pulled off the air for talking about them as COVID cures, right? You know, those are built into logical arguments that say, you know, this drug works and here's why, and here's my premises. And all those things are facts, you know, that lead to a conclusion. Okay, so one can do that with other medications, right? Including the unspeakable, you know, uh, IV one. Now, but I think there's something else going on here, right? And then I talk about this also why language skills, including uh, rhetoric, you know, persuasive uh, communication is important because, you know, by calling that drug a horse dewormer, right? That is a deliberate choice to ignore other ways you could describe it, right? You could describe it as a Nobel Prize winning parasite, you know, eliminator. You could describe it as, you know, it's so, but, you know, if you want to make it seem like another quack remedy, and we all know there's been kind of ridiculous quack remedies out there. If you want to lump this in with quack remedies, you pick a use for it that will cast it in a bad light, even if that's not necessarily, you know, why, I mean, doctors don't like, what you need is a horse dewormer, right? They're thinking what you need is an antiparasitic, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So I think there's a bit of, of um, A, you know, people who want to get you to kind of think this is a quack remedy are going to pick language that will sort of push you in that direction or at least embarrass you to support such a thing. Um, now, one can have a perfectly reasonable argument about why this drug is inappropriate for COVID, right? Without sort of declaring it a, a horse dewormer or, or whatever you want to do, right? Because you, you could do that probably with, with like, Many, not I don't know enough about medicine to know, but like I imagine many medications that have multiple uses, you could find its most absurd use and say, why are you giving a heart patient a drug to treat diarrhea? Well, poss possibly because it's useful for both, you know, on that. So I'd say probably you get a conversation like that going again. And I think bringing in sort of rhetoric and connotation, is there any way you could describe this drug other than why did you choose a drug that has these various properties, why did you choose that? Was it because that's the only possible way to describe it? You know, was it because you have a, you know, you're trying to push people in one direction about thinking one way about this drug. So you'd rather refer to it as that as opposed to a Nobel prize winning, um, you know, and, and I think that could be a way to, if, if you get people to accept more generous or charitable terminology and still reject the conclusion, that's much more powerful. Right. It's like if you if you win the arguments and, and you construct the strongest version of your opponent's argument and you still defeat it, that's much more long lasting. That's much more persuasive. That's much more likely to persuade even somebody who's making an argument you disagree with. Right. When you weaken that person's argument, either by coming up with a sort of, you know, uh, a watered down version or reinterpreting their premises. Right. So. Um, I think that the phrase for this is steel manning versus straw manning, but in, in uh, um, philosophy circles, it's called principle of charity. And the principle of charity, you don't do it just to be, you know, unilaterally disarm. Okay, that, that's basically taking on the strongest version of an opponent's argument, presuming, you know, if one of their premises can be interpreted in a way that would make it weaker than it, than it was meant to be, like the horse dewormer thing, don't do that, you know, instead, you know, argue based on your opponent's definitions, construct his argument, and you can still attack it, you know, but it's attack a stronger version. 
Why do that? Because if, well, think about if, if you presented an argument and somebody argue, argued against an absurd version of it, right? you wouldn't be persuaded. You would hopefully see through the fact that somebody's not trying to take on your argument. They're trying to avoid it or distract from it. So I'd say that's you know part of the sort of disposition of being a critical thinker. Um, there's, a, there's a number of them, as you kind of read about the book, but one of them is to be charitable, you know, to be sort of charitable to other people's arguments, as well as being sort of, of rigorous in terms of taking them on. Yeah, we were in the rhetoric unit for the semester, actually, when we looked at this exchange and talked about it. So my students had a bit of a, of a scaffold from which they could pull from to be able to address this this um, back and forth here, the, these exchanges of, of claims. You know, I, I teach mostly first and second year college students in my class. And every so often when I tell somebody that I teach, you know, a critical inquiry and writing course, they'll say, oh, that must be, you know, difficult because, you know, young people today, they just seem to be all over the place in terms of their thinking. But in actuality, they're quite sharp and if you simply give them the opportunity to, to critically engage the world around them, they can do it quite well. But you have to give them the proper scaffold to be able to understand like anyone else for thousands of years, right? Like, don't you have your biases. It's your job to acknowledge them and to try your best to push them aside enough to be able to evaluate a thought or an idea just on its own merit. But they're absolutely phenomenal. They did a, a wonderful job this semester of evaluating various forms of rhetoric and even in their, their critical analysis as, as well. Okay, so I want to ask you something, uh, kind of a, a personal question about your own thinking habits here. As you, you talk about in the book a little bit, or at least you convey this in the book, critical thinking is never something that you stop learning about. We're always working on our critical thinking and we're always trying to practice it and engage it so that we, be, we become stronger and whatnot. What is something about critical thinking that you struggle with personally? Well, I think, you know, I mean, there, there's one theory that critical thinking is one of those 10,000 hour skills. Right, that, that to get really good, like being a, a, a champion athlete or virtual show musician. So, I mean, you know, as you probably know, even the person who coined that 10,000 hour was didn't mean that like in 9,999, you're not, but like something magic happens. But it's clearly a skill that takes years to develop. Like, and, and fortunately, you know, you can practice thinking and you don't need a sports equipment, you don't need an instrument, a quiet place. You know, we do it all the time. We don't always do it critically. We don't always do it systematically, of course, but there's always opportunities to practice, you know, when you're reading the news, when you're having a conversation, when you're having a debate or argument. So I would say, you know, all of us are in a constant like project to improve on these skills. I think um, people who have studied this or practice, at least we know what is working on, at least we have a set of tools. So, you know, like I mentioned before, I uh, tend to think in terms of informal arguments, but other people in the community as I work in, they think in terms of argument maps and diagrams, but at least there's a tool set to work from. So I'd say, you know, this is one of the reasons it's so important to give people this tool set early on. So as they practice on their own, they'll have the sort of, of 
tools to work with. Um, I, I would say, you know, one of the primary reasons to do this is it's a counter agent to these sort of confirmation biases and things that are hardwired into our brains that we can't eliminate, right? We're not gonna turn into planet Vulcan, right? Um, we are human beings with emotions and you know certain ways that our, our brains work and that's allowed us to survive and are, are often things of great value. You know, all biases are not created equal. Um, so, but I'd say I certainly struggle with, you know, my biases like anybody else does, right? I think, you know, I'm, uh, you know, a certain age, a certain gender, a certain religion. I grew up in a certain, you know, community. Um, I tend to think in certain ways and that colors my perception, right? I mean, because of the work I've done, I'm sort of, of um, neither believe that all that is, is nonsense, right? And that every thought that comes into my head is, is you know, immaculately conceived, right? I fully understand that, that you know, my environment, my backgrounds, et cetera, inform, you know, what I observe and how I deal with that. So, but at the same time, you can be, just as it's absurd to say, you know, critical thinking makes you like immune to all that, it's equally absurd to say that's all we are. We're nothing but a collection of our biases and our preconceptions that derive from our age and our gender and our race and our background and et cetera, et cetera. You know, so I'd say, you know, like most people, I am um, kind of, of not so struggling with this, but I stay aware of when I'm choosing to believe something, for example, am I believing it because it fits my, my worldview? Okay. And if that is the case, I don't, I don't automatically embrace it, you know, 100% without thinking it further, but nor do I reject it because, oh, that's just something anybody of my age and race and, you know, would, would, would leave also, I, I, I critique it, I think about it, you know, and in a way that's like all any of us can do, right? We, we have things we believe and most of the time those are legitimate, but even our legitimate beliefs are open to scrutiny, you know, because if you could sort of argue with your own beliefs and you find a flaw in them, well, that that can shore them up, right? That can potentially make your beliefs stronger by modifying them. You talked before about an argument that was made stronger by weakening the conclusion, right? By or qualifying the conclusion, right? One's own beliefs can be made stronger by being open to having them challenged even by yourself, right? Or lo and behold, you might change your mind. And as we talked about before, like, People are changing their minds about vital issues, like what's the best way to deal with the next, the third year of COVID, right? That's not a sign of weakness, that's a sign of strength. And if we could sort of, of build that into ourselves individually, build that into our communities, into our society, then why would we have stupid fights because we can't accept we're wrong, you know? Especially since accepting we're wrong is not a sign of weakness, it's a sign of, of, of strength and flexibility and power and the ability to think well and think critically. So I guess that's really what I'm sort of, of pushing in the books and the websites and all the curriculum work I do is how do we get ourselves to just sort of, of um, take this wiring we've been given. And it's pretty fantastic wiring, I mean, you know, in, in terms of what 
humans have been able to achieve and can continue to achieve, right? How do we use what's good about it? How do we not throw away everything that gets us into trouble, but understand it, reflect on it, when need be, control for it, you know, and that's the way we can move forward. You know, an example I always like to use is science, right? Everyone's like, so science, like science is not this like thing a certain special kind of person does, right? You know, science is not a single method, right? Science is a culture. And what does that culture does? It diminishes confirmation bias. Doesn't eliminate it, right? There's still bad science all the time that results from people embracing a theory they want to embrace for too long, et cetera, you know? But it, it diminishes it just enough to give us all the marvels science has provided over the last like 400 years, right? So if we can just diminish our biases, not completely eliminate, but just enough in other aspects of our lives, you know, and how we make decisions, how we, you know, make political choices, et cetera, you know, could we achieve that same kind of bounty, but to solve all kinds of problems, including some of the problems science has caused? Well, I think that's, probably a good place to start drawing our conversation to a close here. And uh, I think you're right that we need we need to be able to come to a place where we can have these difficult, complex discussions through critical thinking, right? Because our problems as a species, it's not as if they're going to become easier or less complex, which means I think our thinking and our discussions have to become more complex as well. And if you're adding complexity to a discussion you have to be able to convey that information to each other as accurately as possible and also in an, in an engaging enough way that people feel like they can come and have a meaningful conversation with you. And then it's not just a one-sided, you're screaming at them, they're screaming at you, and no one gets anywhere in the actual discussion. So... Jonathan, this has been an absolutely wonderful conversation. Please tell my listeners, where can they learn more about you and about your work? Well, probably the best place to start is, is my own kind of professional website, which is my name, jonathanhaber.org, uh, uh, which has links to critical thinking and other books I've written on critical thinking and other topics. Um, I, I mentioned Logic Check. I think uh, logiccheck.net, that would be a place I recommend for people who want to see some of the things uh, Joseph, you and I have been talking about in action. Um, I also have a site called Degree of Freedom, that uh, degreeoffreedom.org, all one word, that sort of, of includes things like uh, a set of teaching practices. I call them high leverage critical thinking teaching practices that shows how some of these ideas can be put to use in specific uh uh, educational situation. So probably start there, but uh, those will be on, on your show notes. People have links to those three sites. This has been an absolutely wonderful time for me. Thank you, Jonathan, for being on the show. It was a total pleasure, Joseph. Thanks for the uh, invite. I hope you get a chance to uh, talk again sometime. Well, I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Jonathan Haber. And I encourage you to use the links in the show notes below to check out Jonathan Haber's work. Additionally, if you enjoyed the episode, please hit the subscribe and follow button and leave a kind rating and or comment where applicable for the podcast. We want to make sure we get this information in front of as many people as possible. Until next time, try to keep one foot firmly planted on the neutral ground and have a great 
day.